The Apostle Paul says, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power in your inner spirit, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power to comprehend with all the Lord's holy people how deep and wide and long and high is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The invitation that we're extending to you this year is not just to step into a series of messages, but to step into an entirely different way of life. And the way that we've tried to describe this for you is with a word picture that comes from the heart of one of our most sincere prayers that we just heard in song form, Psalm 23. That image of my cup runneth over or my cup overflows. Is it really possible to live the kind of life where the goodness and the mercy of God well up within you and spill out from you. Now, the Bible tells us that it is possible, but the reason that that is not normative for people like you and me is because the container that is our life, and this particularly is you know, kind of depicted for us in the prophets, that the container of our life is cracked. It's broken. That we've done things like chase after worthless things and idolatry and become worthless ourselves that we're the kind of people that have forsaken the living water, and because our containers are broken, they leak. And so God pours his goodness and mercy into you and me, but it, it just doesn't have a chance to become that flowing living water that the Bible talks about. And yet when Jesus comes, he describes for us that the gospel invitation isn't just that you and I will get to the source of Jesus as the living water, but that he takes it a step further to say that you and I will become the conduit of living water flowing out of us. So what began as a prayer, even though our lives have been fragmented for generation upon generation, what we firmly believe is that that promise is true and secure but then there's the question, what do we do about it? How do we participate or practice in this kind of life? Well, for centuries, followers of Jesus Christ have engaged in a variety of different habits and patterns and practices and ways of life that Jesus himself did, that Old Testament figures did, that the Apostle Paul did. And here is a list of our roadmap for the year of many of these practices that we're going to experiment with, that we're going to be doing after our month of introduction, a month of prayer, a month of Sabbath, a month of secrecy and confession, a month of solitude and silence, listening and discernment, simplicity and fasting, study of God's word, worship and celebration, service and generosity, and a month of a life with Jesus of how do we put all of this together. And I know that to see a list like this, on the one hand, might be exciting to thinking about what this curriculum might mean for you and me. It might also be the kind of thing that feels a little bit overwhelming. I want to be immensely practical today as we talk about these practices, because it's really easy to mess this up. In order to try to describe this for you, I need to begin 
by describing for you an in-ground pool heating system, which is not the pivot that you were probably expecting in terms of segways. One of my favorite forms of trying to stay active is I love to swim. I love to get up early in the morning. I love the peace of getting into the sensory deprivation chamber that is the pool. Nobody can call me in the pool. Nobody can text me in the pool. I just get to be in that period of solitude and silence while I'm getting to exercise at the same time. I love going to the pool. I don't like, of late, the unreliability of the temperature of what the pool is in the wintertime. That there seems to be a battle that's going on between mechanical and engineering and the pool itself. And there's an incredible variance. Within the last couple of weeks, I went over to the sensor on my way to the pool and it said 66 degrees. You need to know that that's a hard stop for your pasture. <laughs> that about 74 degrees and above, I'm game. 81 degrees is ideal. 66 degrees is a no-go. And so what's been happening where I swim between management and the swimmers and engineering and mechanical is that everybody's been complaining. The swimmers are complaining that you cannot rely on the temperature of the water. Management is complaining that they don't understand what's wrong. Engineering is trying to figure it out. Well, there's a guy who I regularly swim with in the morning, and he used to be on the swim team for the University of Georgia. So while I go like this, he goes like this, okay? But in addition to that, he used to also manage the pool in Athens. And so for weeks, the, the temperature just seems to be all over the map, but particularly low. And while, um, while he's looking at the pool, he says, yeah, we got a little bit of problem. You see these little discs that are at the bottom of the pool? They were closed. And so that means that the heater can't get anything into the pool. Now, you can't go into the pool and just with your bare hand try to open up those little things. No matter how strong you are or how tight your grip is or how small your fingers are or big your fingers are, you cannot open that. It requires a special tool. And so some of the guys who work in mechanical go back and they find this special tool and there's two of us who are in the pool for the better part of 30 minutes holding our breath swimming down to the bottom and trying to open up each of one of those single vents. This was my workout for the day. I didn't need to swim afterwards. <laughs> and in doing that, you could start to feel the warmth of the heater starting to fill the pool. Now, eventually, this analogy will break down, but here's what I need to tell you. What I need to tell you is things like prayer, Bible study, fasting, Sabbath, they are tools. They're good tools, but they're tools. I don't go to the pool to be able to play with tools. I go to the pool to be able to swim. But sometimes you're going to need to use those tools in order to be able to open up the flow of water so that the pool can be what it is designed to be that's optimized for swimming. I'm about to say something that might even sound blasphemous, but it's the God's honest gospel truth. The goal of prayer is not to pray. It is to commune with God. The goal of Bible study is not to read the Bible. The goal of Bible study is to have God's Word saturate your mind and your imagination. 
So the great danger in spiritual practices is we can get the means and the ends confused with one another. We can forget that all of these things that we are about to do this year is engaged in tool and they are not the ends into themselves. That all of these things that we're going to experiment, we're going to do, they are things that we need to do and they're good tools to have, but they are pointing us to what our life is supposed to be. And so as we look at practices, we're going to need to make sure that we don't mess this up. Because it's really easy to get this stuff wrong. That spirituality, wrongly understood or pursued, is actually a source of great human misery in your life and in mine. And so what we're going to see, and we tend to think of somebody like the Apostle Paul as a theologian who wrote some really great words. But Paul was not just writing theology and spouting it off to churches. Paul was a practitioner. He gives us a little clue in the passage that I shared with you and recited for you before that he's the kind of person, for this reason I kneel before the Father. Paul is the kind of person who kneels to pray. I remember when I was 27 years old and I was a new senior pastor, I felt like that my prayer life was arid and empty. And I met every single week for prayer with two other pastors in the area, and these pastors were older and wiser than I was. And I was willing to be vulnerable and to share with them, guys, I don't, I don't feel God's presence in my prayer life anymore. And one of them asked me a variety of questions, but he says, what are you doing when you pray? And I said, well, I'm praying and I'm sitting there. And he's like, do you ever pray on your knees? And I said, no. And he said, just try it. I got on my knees and that changed my prayer life. Now, when I got on my knees, does that make God have to answer my prayer in any different way? No. When I got on my knees, does that make me a better Christian than somebody who isn't on their knees? No. When I got on my knees, does that make me holy or different from anyone else? No. It wasn't a life hack, it wasn't a tip, it wasn't a trick, it was a tool. And in the right hands, with the right thing, for the right reason, getting on your knees can help you to unlock your prayer life. And so as we look at what these practices might mean to us, the Apostle Paul, who is a practitioner, who got on his knees in order to pray, he gives us in the remainder of this passage a, a sense of what the process is, of what happens when we engage in spiritual practices like these. And so this is what the Apostle Paul talks about. When we start to practice our faith in these kind of ancient ways, four things will happen. It will strengthen you, it will enliven you, well, something will start to dwell within you and something will start to establish in you. So first, let's talk about how doing these types of things strengthen you. This is how Paul puts it. He says that God may strengthen you with power. Make no mistake about it. These spiritual practices are about getting stronger. For all of my adult life, I have loved, the other thing that I love to do to stay ahead of father time is to run. 
I love getting to do that. Turned 50 this last year. I have run pain-free my whole life. And wouldn't you know, when I turned 50, I'd finish a run and I'd be like, that really hurts, my right knee. I'm talking to my right knee right now. That really hurts. Why are you doing that? And it would hurt for a while. And so eventually, not that long ago, I went to the doctor, the orthopedic, and I said, Doc, I don't know what's going on. He grabs my left knee, pinching on the sides, and he's twisting it and pulling it in all kinds of different directions, no pain at all. He takes his two fingers and he pinches on my right knee, and I'm like, ow, don't do that. And he said, I just saved you a lot of money, that's cheaper and faster than an MRI, that's called your meniscus. And he writes me a prescription for PT, which is known as physical torture. <laughs> or physical therapy, as it might be called. And what my physical therapist is doing is that she is helping me to strengthen some muscles that have atrophied because of some fluid getting in that area. Now, do I like doing the particular little exercises that strengthen those muscles in my leg that she says is going to put the shock absorber back in my legs? No. Am I doing those things because they are life-giving to me? No. I am doing them because one day I want to be able to run pain-free again. What's happening when I physically train in this way is that I am getting stronger with a power that I don't have right now. And this is the same thing that is true in every other dimension of our lives, including our spiritual lives. John Orberg describes a discipline this way. He says, it is any activity that I can do by direct effort that will help me do what I cannot now do by direct effort. Will you say this definition with me? Because this is kind of a little bit of a head trip. Any activity I can do by direct effort that will help me do what I cannot now do by direct effort. Can I make my knee by willpower stop hurting? No. Can I do little exercises that make me stronger that might lead to the point of it not hurting? Yes. This is true, again, in all ways. You want to learn how to play a musical instrument? You have to practice the scales. Does anybody like practicing scales? Probably not unless they're sadistic and weird. Does anybody like practicing vocabulary words in Italian? Of course not. But one day you might be able to go to Italy and not look like an idiot when you're ordering your food when you're in Italy and you get to enjoy the carb or load that is eating all of that pasta. Here are the means and the ends. This is all about power. Prayer is about power. Reading the Bible is about power. All of these things are about a form of strength training in your life with God that are within your power now to be able to do something that you cannot do right now. You are training in righteousness. So the first thing that if you're doing these things right, that will happen, you might notice, not notice it right away, but over time, you will notice that you're getting stronger. Second thing you'll notice that'll happen if you go on this journey, this process with us in spiritual formation, it not only makes you stronger, you will start to come alive in a whole new way. Look at what Paul says after talking about strength, that we would, with that power, through his spirit, the word there for spirit is breath or life, in your inner being. 
You have an inner life. You have a soul. Most of us ignore that part of our life. We pay attention to our emotional health. We pay attention to our physical health. We pay attention to what we eat. But we ignore our soul. You have an inner life. It is the most substantive, eternal, and significant thing about you. And with that soul, there is a way that God breathes life into us. Almost anything can be a spiritual discipline if we use it in the right kind of way and that it is geared towards breathing that kind of life with us. I hope you got to come and to hear John Mark Comer that was here on Sunday night. If you didn't, it's on our watch page on our website. It's in our podcast. Really encourage you to listen to that great conversation that's a little over an hour. And he explains a lot of this. And one of the strange things that we learned about John Mark is that on his desk, in his office, where he prays, he has a human skull. It's not a real human skull, it's an Etsy human skull. And you might be thinking, that's more than a little weird, a lot morbid, but it is actually an ancient practice that's called memento morti, and it has to do with the memory of death. And in the midst of that, every time John Mark goes to pray, every time he passes that skull, he is reminded how fleeting and short life is and that he should not waste his life. Not right away, but over time, a part of his soul with that practice is more alive because of the reminder of death. Again, anything used in the right way can start to become a spiritual practice. And if you're doing this right, over time, not only will you get a little stronger, you'll start to notice that inside you're a little more alive. The third thing that happens in spiritual formation in the process is that God begins to dwell in you in a whole new way. This is how Paul puts it. That you may be strengthened in your power, in your inner spirit, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The golden thread of the Bible is that God has come to dwell with his people. And that that's not just a theological thing that we talk about at Christmas in the incarnation when God has come to dwell among us. It's the reality of Jesus coming to dwell among us so that the Spirit might be able to dwell within us through our trust and our faith in him. And so one of the things that we need to recognize is that one of the goals of our spiritual life, one of the things that will happen is that we will start to experience the proximity and the connection with God in an entirely new dimension. It reminds me of the time when Kelly and I, um, we were early married and we got to go on all of these great trips all the time and any night could be a date night and it was super easy to be able to know one another, to be together. And then this little disruptive event happened that was wonderful but disrupted called having a family. And all of a sudden, our rhythms and our time and everything was way different from one another, especially when we got to the, you know, the man-on-man defense of having two kids. And then all of a sudden, it was just like frantic. Okay, you got it, you got it, because I got to go do this. Okay, you got it, I got it. Okay, we're going to go do this. And Kelly and I had to stay very organized where we have a variety of different tasks, a variety of chores, just to try to keep our heads above the water in those early childhood years. What we noticed after a while 
is that a marriage can devolve in that moment where it becomes you're just a partnership with chores and you no longer are there to connect. My fear is that many of you are going to start with great enthusiasm into this spiritual life and you're going to be like, yep, getting a little stronger. Yep, I'm starting to come alive a little bit on the inside. But then there's going to be this thing where you're going to feel like you're checking the box. And these little tools that you have that are good tools but are just tools, they're going to just feel like chores, tasks, to-dos. And I'm here to tell you that those things are the means to the end of you connecting with Christ in a way that the Spirit starts to dwell and remain and abide in you. And you never, in the same way in a marriage, you never want to forget what the goal of a marriage is. You don't want to forget what the goal of all of these tasks are. The third thing that will start to happen in your spiritual life, not only strengthened, enlivened, and God starts to dwell on you, something begins to be established in you in a different way. And what he talks about being established in you is with the agricultural image of rooted, of being rooted and established in love. Here's what's important about this. I know plenty of people who read their Bibles and they just get more and more judgmental and more hypocritical. I know plenty of people who at least report to praying and yet they're rotten people from the inside out. If you are not experiencing over the long arc a greater sense of love of God and love of neighbor, you're doing it wrong. And you should stop and recalibrate and figure out what it is that you are doing because the output of these spiritual practices is that you and I will become more like Christ and we will reflect more of his love. This is what these things are intended to produce, but they can get manipulated and warped in a way that it doesn't work. John Orberg again, puts it well. He puts it like this. A disciplined person is someone who can do the right thing at the right time in the right way with the right spirit. The right here you could substitute as loving. If you're praying and you're not becoming more loving, stop and figure out what's going on. If you're doing Sabbath and you're not becoming more loving, stop, figure out what's going on. And so this is the journey, the process, and the way that I would define spiritual formation or spiritual disciplines is God's spirit bringing us to greater life to be with Christ for the sake of loving others. This is to me what the journey of the soul is, and it is the nature of this invitation that we would like to extend to you to go on this long journey this year with us. The output of this in New Testament language is that you might be filled with all of the fullness of God. And that that's not just a phrase, it can actually be true. Most of the time you write me nice emails. 
But some of the times, some of you write me an email, and it is not filled with the encouragement of Barnabas. Sometimes you stop me in the hallway, most of the time in fact, and you encourage me. Sometimes you say things you probably shouldn't say, even to your pastor where it's safe. Most of the time, my job is to not let the compliments go to my head and to not take some of the things that you say too seriously in terms of the criticism. My goal is to listen to all of it, to discern, to pray, to filter through it, and to make sure that I'm leading Peachtree as effectively as a servant of Christ as I can. But within the last couple of weeks, you need to know I had a hallway conversation. It just, oh, it triggered me. Somebody stopped me and said, hey, this overflow thing? I'm like, yeah. He's like, feels a little overdone to me. I said, well, it's January. We're going to do it all year. This is going to be a long year for you. <laughs> He's like, no, no, no. It's not, that's not what I mean. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, I don't know. I, it just feels more like marketing to me than the gospel. Oh, I got mad. And this is my response to you if you're in here in this room right now or you're watching online. This is not marketing. It is the gospel. For you see, in the New Testament, there is a word that you need to understand. It is the Greek word pleroma. And in that word, what we discover is that it is a word that occurs 278 times in the New Testament, and it means fullness or completeness. Say pleroma for me. Here's a couple of examples of Pleroma in the New Testament. That Jesus, when he opened the scroll in the launch of his ministry, and he read from the prophet Isaiah, he rolled up the scroll and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is Pleroma, fulfilled in your hearing. And then in the famous Christmas passage, when it says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, that we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, play Roma or full of grace and truth. Later in the gospel of John, when Jesus is doing the upper room discourse and he's talking with his disciples towards the end of his life, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that my joy, your joy may be play Roma complete. And then when the set time, Paul says, when the time was fully right, play Roma right, God sent his son in the incarnation. Then later, Paul in 1 Corinthians will say, for the earth is the Lord and everything, or play Roma in it. A better translation of this, and the fullness there within. And then he says this in Colossians, for in Christ, all of the pleroma, all of the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to pleroma or fullness. And then in Jude, mercy, peace, and love be yours in pleroma, in abundance, or in the passage that we had today, that you may be pleroma, filled to the measure of all of the pleroma of God. 
I have about 264 other examples of me to show you that the object of what God is doing in the experiment of the incarnation, the resurrection, and the new creation is to come is that God is filling the universe with his eternal presence and that the gospel that you and I have truncated and in North America reduced it to that it's like, hey, if you give intellectual assent to these kinds of things, you get to go to the good place instead of the bad place, but it doesn't matter what you do with the rest of your life is not the whole story. That God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to usher in a new kingdom and a new kind of reality for the explosion of his mercy and his goodness that he is filling and pouring into this world and that he is choosing to partner with the likes of you and me that in our rescue what is actually happening is that our containers are being healed and restored in a kind of way where you will be the living fountain of the living and loving God in pouring out your love that comes from Christ to a world that is thirsty and desperately needs living water. It's not marketing. It's Playroma. It's the fullness. The fullness of God that has been given to us. And sometimes you're going to have to pick up the tools. And you're going to have to learn how to open the pipes so that what God gives is able to flow into you and to others. The end is not the tools. The end is the living water where the fullness of God is available to us. Your life can overflow. Let's pray. Make this prayer sincere to us, God, of an overflowing cup. We've longed for, for the ages, what is so broken within us and what you have assured us now is something that we can actually do. God, forgive us for using these tools as the ends unto themselves, becoming little Pharisees instead of becoming people of love. Make sure that we do not see these things as chores, but as means of connection with you. Help us to abide in you even as we do these things. May your spirit help us to come alive in a whole new way, not just with strength and power, but with breath. Lord, we have such a tendency to get all of this wrong. Help us to learn how to do it right this year. Not perfectly. But help us to do it in a way where your living water starts starts to flow right through us. Fill us, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.